Hey, I'm Danny Mazer, and you are listening to the Soul Stories Podcast, an extension of Soul Stories, where we host conversations for healing and change. Normally on this podcast, I interview my guest, and we go into the depths of their story and their personal experiences. And today, we're bringing you a little experiment. My partner in Soul Stories, Chelsea, and I are posting videos to our Patreon platform for our lovely patrons who give us monthly donations, who believe in this work, who believe in the power of human connection and vulnerability. And we want to provide them with nuanced conversations on meaningful topics, along with resources and ways to build community and connect. And we want to post these conversations to this platform and see if our podcast audience is interested in Chelsea and I having these dialogues. Maybe we bring a guest on. Maybe we have different segments. We'd like to hear your feedback. Um, There'll be links in the description. Please reach out to us. Let us know if you want us to move in this direction. Or we can go back to our original format because those were very beautiful episodes as well. Anyways, uh, here is our episode, and I think you will enjoy this conversation on peace building. And what are we talking about today? We're talking about peace building. Yeah. So we listened to this podcast where these guys were, basically they have a nonprofit where they travel around the world to conflict zones, and they bring together groups from opposing sides and have dialogue where they can achieve some level of peace. The organization's called Search for Common Ground, and I believe the podcast was come together right now on your, the podcast title was Your Undivided Attention. That was the podcast platform. Anyways, I will stop rambling. Um, but yeah, I thought, it was, I thought it was super interesting, and it reminded me of an event we just did in October. Yes, that would be Approaching the Divide, which was an event where we brought together right before the election, we brought together people from both sides of the political aisle, at least people that were voting uh, Trump versus Biden. And we brought them into a room and they talked to each other. It was tense. (laughs) It actually wasn't that bad. It was fine. No, it was really nice actually. And nobody died. And I really uh, feel like that was the biggest accomplishment of the day. I think that was kind of the goal. Yeah. We survived the conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, it was interesting because we did a lot of the tactics they talk about in, um, in this peace building podcast where we created space for people to be, um, seen and known not to debate. Um, we created space where people were asking each other about each other's stories and how they developed at their beliefs, not, um, engaging in, argument about who's right and who's wrong and what what do you what do you what did you see as the results of that conversation or what do you think came of it well i think what and this was our goal is that we brought people into the room that had already decided who they were voting for they were pretty much like committed to their opinions so the idea was not to try to change each other's minds and i think people walked away with a better understanding of how people that they would not normally engage with how they arrived at their opinions and how they think about different political issues and the um 
even just like the content and the facts behind each side's opinion. And that was another really important part of our conversation that we hosted was that people are not allowed to fact check because it feels like we're living in this world where people are operating with different sets of facts. And we thought it might derail into just like everyone's on their phones trying to Google the facts and like one up each <laughs> well, other. Well, actually, well, actually. Yeah. So we didn't let any of that happen. And instead it was, it just had to be like, everyone got to interview each other. Yeah. So it was very personal. It, what was the, my favorite part of that was, um, and they talk about this in the podcast too, is, you know, on social media, we're often projecting our ideas and our opinions. Um, and we don't have space for that feedback or to be seen in those opinions or to be, to see others and other opinions. Um, and so we had this really nice experience where people were talking and chatting, um, even though they didn't agree with each other and they're feeling connected. And then after that, we had read to them what they had previously said, said about each other online. So we did this pre-survey where we asked how people feel about each other um, feel about the other side. And they said some pretty aggressive remarks. And so we're all in this really warm and fuzzy space. And then we read what each other thinks about each other, um, based on like social media presence. And that just like deflated the room. It was like, it felt like we were bringing a whole, whole different personas into it. Yeah. Cause like, you know, in the real world, there's this certain air of politeness that we're expected to carry with each other yeah totally and i think we showed that people can talk if the conditions are right Mm -hmm. and um yeah do you see how do you see peace building existing do you think it can coexist with justice and when do you see um the difference in the time and the place well i think that there's an important difference between peace and justice And because peace is what we experience largely in the United States. Um, And we experience that peace upon the backs of like other people in other countries that suffer for our benefit, like on a regular basis, you know? So when I eat a chocolate bar here in the United States, I don't, I have that right to comfort to not be exposed to the life of the people that are actually creating that chocolate bar for me. And when it's only a dollar for me, I don't have to think about the fact that it shouldn't be only a dollar, but people aren't being paid properly for the production of the things that I buy. And so my existence within that, my relationship to that chocolate bar is very peaceful. You know, I have a very comfortable, peaceful relationship to it. Um, And that is not justice. It's almost like a passive violence. Yes. the, The experience of peace... Uh, in the oppressor group is like very common, you know, that's how just like if oppression is working, the oppressor group feels peace. Uh huh. Um, and so like in the past year, we've had all of this obviously like reckoning with racism, particularly, and that has made a lot of people uncomfortable. And I think it may like, you know, including myself, like I've had to like be confronted by racism this year. And that discomfort can feel like it's an offense on you if you don't understand where that rage is coming from, you know? 
And so I think that like, it's, it's really easy to say like, why are people causing these problems? I was peaceful before and now I'm not peaceful. (laughs) What have you done? You know? Um, And so I think that, I think that when we talk about peace, we cannot use it in an oppressive way. We have to use it as a part of a phase that people go through after praxis, after like the creation of more justice. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, let's take a hypothetical situation where we have somebody on the political right who believes racism doesn't exist. And we bring somebody on the political left who has a converse, who like is anti-racist, who's doing the work and practicing um, these kind of beliefs. And we bring them to the table. I don't think anything would happen there. I think it could be like, it could be potentially damaging, especially if the person on the left is a person of color. Um, and what I thought was interesting about this podcast is they, discuss the conditions that like two opposing groups need to have to come to the table when we're talking about an oppressive group and um, an oppressed group. Mm -hmm. Like for example, they had the uh, like members of the queer community meeting with people from a church that basically like, you know, had ideas like queer people are going to hell and stuff like that. Yeah. Do you do you remember what they did for that? Well, basically, from what they talked about, a lot of it was members of the LGBT community sharing their stories and allowing members of the church to be witnesses to that. And the thing that was really transformative for the members of the church was allow like allowing people to share stories of kids becoming homeless and stuff like that and the real impacts of those beliefs. Yeah, it's almost like we have to get into a space where we're open to for people to understand the kind of impact that these really oppressive ideals can have on our communities. Yeah, and sometimes in order for someone to be willing to hear something like that, they also need that space to be heard and seen first. What do you think about the phrase security, dignity, and hope are not zero-sum games? That was brought up. Um, Yeah, security, dignity, and hope were like the three things that they were saying that people need to feel and experience within these dialogues. Um, When you say they're not zero-sum games, I don't... What do you think that means? Because I don't really know. Well, I think what they were referring to is um, kind of social media culture of... um, I don't know. Let's bring up calling out people where it's like where the only way to move forward in our society is to label the other side, um, as lesser than as not, um, doing the work, not enough racist, et cetera. And obviously there's a time and a place to call racism when racism is there, but it was essentially saying like, um, they were trying to say that if we think of security, dignity, and hope where like the way to reverse oppressor and oppressed is for the oppressed to gain the upper hand on the oppressor and take their security, dignity, and hope away, then we're going to kind of repeat the cycle. Does it make sense? Was I clear on that? Yeah, I understand what you're saying, but I don't really see it happening. Like, 
I don't think that that's really a problem in our society that oppressed people are getting the upper hand over the oppressors and dominating them. No, I don't think that's the case either. I think it's that sides are losing sides. Aren't feeling like they're getting dignity from the other side is I think really what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Well, yeah. And like, I mean, I think that I was just talking to, I have a friend who is, um, our do they deserve dignity? Sorry to interrupt, but is the question. So our friend was just, we were just, I was just talking to our friend, Rebecca, who is, does a lot of, um, activism work, especially in the Jewish community. And she was at the March in support of Palestine a couple of days ago. And we were talking about this and she was talking about how some people respond really well to the very clear calling out of something that is unjust. Uh Um, You know, some people need to be awakened to their situation by being told directly like, hey, you're being racist right now. Like what you're saying is racist. Yeah. And, you know, I I think I'm glad you said that because I think I'm becoming more clear on what I'm trying to say. Um, I guess it's like, you know, Brene Brown talks about shame versus guilt where shame is like, you are this way and guilt is like, you did this action and this action is this way. And I think what security, the security, dignity and hope conversation is like, can you call an action an action? Can you call an action racist without completely discounting that person and, um, taking their dignity away in that situation. Well, there's one thing, one question in that is like, can you word it? Like, how are you wording it? And the other question is, how are they taking it? Yeah. And you can't control how anybody takes any information. Yeah. They could take it as a shame-based thing when you are just being like, that was a racist thing that happened. Yeah. That, that happens a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Is the miscommunication. Well, is the like someone being like, I think that there was this idea that we were operating with for a very long time in our society in the United States of like racist people are bad people. So either you're a bad racist person or uh-huh. you're a good person that's nice to people. Uh huh. And most people identify as a good person that's nice to people. So if you call them racist, then they equate that. Or if you say like what you said was racist, Mm -hmm. then they will feel that you are saying that they are a bad person at their core. And so like one of the kind of re-educating things that we need to do right now is to understand that all of us are racist. Like all of us are operating within a racist system and we were raised within the society. And it's not like any of us doesn't have work to do on that. Totally. I actually was having a conversation with somebody close to me that doesn't agree with me and is on the political right. And I was telling them, I was like, I, I, I feel like there is racism inside me that I need to work through when I was trying to call out all these racist things that were happening in the community and they were like, racism doesn't exist, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, I feel like it's inside me. And their response was, well, it sounds like you're, you're projecting that onto me and maybe that's something you should work on for yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I think, that, <laughs> well, you know, I think that's also a good reason why these spaces are so rare and so, um, valuable that we heard on this podcast and why it's so 
interesting. Um, I, they were talking yeah. about the Iranian nuclear deal mm-hmm. and they were, I think this was back when Clinton was in presidency is, uh, is what they were referencing. Um, maybe it was 2015. Anyways, I, I was confusing some details, but they were talking about, they said Clinton thanked them for it, but they didn't, uh, they didn't say when I don't remember them saying if he was president at the time or not. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for (laughs) clarifying that. And they were, they were talking about how Iran was like, why would we do this with you? You're the U S you have like all this history in the middle East of doing all these abusive things. And like, we have less power, et cetera, et cetera. And how they started the conversation was with a wrestling tournament because in Iran, um, wrestling is king is how they described it. And so they had these U.S. wrestlers go over and the U.S. wrestlers are like, whoa, people here know our names and people in the U.S. don't even know our names. Um, and they had this tournament where Iran was in a position of power because it was their home court. It was the sport they respect and love. And they found common ground through wrestling, which kind of just like eased some tensions to start like a political conversation, which was an interesting, um, an interesting way to bring somebody like with way big, uh, way different power, uh, way bigger power differentials together to the table. Yeah. You have to be careful with that though, right? Because you don't want to give people a false sense of power. That's like manipulative in a way. That's true. And that could, that could it be that, could, you know, like they, I, and I found that this organization seemed to be really good at nuanced work. <laughs> yeah. Um, and one thing that's like really coming up for me in all of this is the importance of the environment and like, you know, in these very specific spaces where people are willing to come to the table and talk, you know, like, like, for example, with the church and the LGBT community, you know, you would never want that to be a part of public discourse in which, like, all gay people are expected to go to hateful people and explain to them why they deserve humanity. It right. has to be like an opt-in kind of thing. Yeah, both parties have to come to the table and be willing. Right. And so, like... And a professional mediator and facilitator. Mm-hmm. And so we have like, we have a culture in which like we all live and operate and in, in our culture, norms have to be set. Like it is not okay to walk around in our culture and just say anti-Semitic things. Right. Like if that happens, like shut that down. There has to be lines. Yeah. But if there is someone who is willing to actually go and like do the work and try to help someone who is deeply racist not be racist anymore in the right context, in a very specific context, then, you know, healing is possible. And I think what's beautiful about this example is when it's not about individual going to individual. I mean, it is about that, but it's, I think it's important to have that community support in these conversations where you're coming to the table with a group of people who are, working with another group of people and you guys, you don't feel so isolated or alone in it. Mm -hmm. Um, And having somebody who has the emotional bandwidth um, to hold that space. Cause I'm sure a lot of triggering and traumatizing 
um, bullshit can come up for a lot of people, you know? Absolutely. And like to answer the question that you posed earlier, like someone who has not extended dignity to you is not owed dignity by you. Uh huh. But if some pe- there are people in this world who, f- who have that capacity to love in the face of hate in a way that isn't self berating and can still, you know, respect them, do it in a self-respecting way. And like that, I think that is like a very special gift to give to people. (laughs) Yeah. I, I think it's, um, I think it's beautiful to listen to these examples of heavily like high conflict zones with like histories of violence, finding solutions that aren't compromising. They're empowering for both groups. Um, and it's, I don't know, it's, it's rare work. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, and like, even within the like family dynamics and stuff like that, you know, you can see this kind of stuff play out, you know, like two family members have a conflict and, you know, one has been deeply disrespectful to the other. They both perhaps feel disrespected, you know, but like is, is someone going to be willing to do that additional labor that maybe even the other person doesn't deserve? Yeah. You, I feel like you hear about that with therapy a lot is mm-hmm. like people go through therapy and they're like, well, I just have to accept this other person as they are. Um, and if I feel ready, I'm going to try to have a relationship with them. And that can yeah. be really challenging because the other person might not change at all. Yeah, exactly. In that situation. Conflict is just really interesting because I don't think we'll ever escape it. And I think he, like conflict is a part of human existence. Yeah. And, you know, I think that one of the biggest risks that we kind of explored in this podcast and you and I have talked about a lot is like the risk of isolation. Yes. And like as individual groups, you know, if they have extremist ideas and they get kicked out of society, like... It's good because like as a society, we need to have a certain society based standard of respect. Um, But like some kind of like you can't just let that fester, right? Like you can't Uh let hate groups isolate to the point where they build and grow and grab onto other people from like normal society and pull them in. And so, yeah, that's dangerous. And I feel like we always get to the question is like, who's responsible for the caretaking of those people, you know, like here's an example. Let's say we're in a group of friends. Let's say we hang out with the same 12 friends every Saturday night. Mm -hmm. And one of our friends starts to, you know, get into some deep (laughs) dark web Reddit incel stuff. And they like start to bring some ideas to the table and it makes people uncomfortable and it um, is damaging to some people. And our response is, that's not okay. Don't bring this to the space. And then they respond by like, well, fuck you. And they leave and then they go and then their community becomes those incels. Nobody would fault anybody for cutting that person out of that group. Yeah. Um, And in fact, to keep that person in the group is a risk in itself as well. Right. Because then they are going to start spreading those ideas within the group. 
Exactly. And create an unsafe space for like the women in the group, for example. But if they're out of the group, then their ideas are never challenged and they only grow more and they grow stronger when they are like festering in the dark web. Right. And another interesting dichotomy of problems (laughs) (laughs) that will never be solved (laughs) is that if you like this person, if you if you call them out and you say, hey, what you're saying is completely like disrespectful and like has hate in it, like this is not okay, then you you might push them away. Uh But if you also say, oh, interesting. Hmm. And like try to stay in relationship with that person and try to talk softly talk them out of it, then that can actually be like empowering and emboldening to them. Right. Where they're like, oh, I feel I feel validated. Right. And so you, that I think is a thing where you have to really read the moment as well. It's like, you know, I think I think honesty is really important. Yeah. I mean, I think. Calling out is just as important as sitting down and having dialogue um, and calling in. Call out and call in, I think, are equally important. And, you know, I had an interesting conversation with a family member that said something that was really racist. And it was just so concrete. It wasn't, it was black and white. And I named it as that's racist and like that I will not be around to hear that. Um, which (laughs) just gave me so much panic. (laughs) I was so scared to say that, you know, um, and this is somebody I deeply love and we got pushed apart. Um, and it was a pretty rough evening where we just had to take space from each other and we weren't talking to each other and we came back and had a dialogue and that person was really open to hearing what I had to say. And that person was like, you know, I just, I felt really embarrassed when you said that in front of the group, um, yeah, our our family members. And I wish you would have just pulled me to the side. And if that repair didn't happen, I would walk away thinking I was self-righteous. Like I said that what I needed to say, Like I did it in the way that was supposed to happen, but because of that repair um, and that person having investment in our relationship, we're both equally invested in this relationship. Then I had to be, I had to check myself and be like, Oh, I didn't even think about that. I could have embarrassed this person. And there was a whole different way I could have called them out. Um, And that person chose to never say that word again um, and understood how that was racist. And we had this, it it led to a deepening of our relationship, which, you know, is rare, but it w- I felt really privileged to be a part of it. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, sure, maybe maybe you could have talked to that person privately, but I also think that there's like value in making public statements to your family. That's true. Everybody too. who was a witness to that got that you set the cultural tone by being that voice. Yeah. And even if in that situation, I still say, you're right, I could have pulled you to, to the side um, and I give them that, that, give them that little win, it still is good that I did say it in front of the group in some way. But they won't forget it that way, yeah. you know? 
So in conclusion, <laughs> there is no conclusion. <laughs> Hashtag soul stories. I mean, I think my number one thing is like, it's important to be honest. And I think that things need to be said more. Yeah. You know? And I think that you kind of lean more on the like, we don't want to ostracize people. We don't want to create isolation because that could be dangerous as well. Uh-huh. Yeah. I I think what I want to advocate for the most is like people who have the space to host things like we do at Soul Stories. I think there just needs to be more spaces. I think we should have activism and spaces like Soul Stories equally in tandem working together and approaching the situations that fit best for both. Yeah. And like the person that is most responsible to talk to the oppressor group is a person who's a member of that group. Right. Right. Like I'm a white guy. Yeah. And so like, it makes sense that you should be doing this work because like that, like that incel character that we made up a couple of minutes ago, like is not going to talk to me in the same way that he's going to talk to you and respect what you have to say. Right. Unfortunately. But I mean, you are a magic maker and all of that is very true, but specifically you, Chelsea Ochoa has, People have said things to you that they will never say to me, and they are members of the oppressor group. <laughs> and they have opened up to you, and you have, I don't know, you've made a lot of difference in people's lives by just listening to them, giving them space, taking on that emotional energy, and calling them out, which is kind of amazing. Yeah, they can Venmo me later, because that's a lot <laughs> of emotional labor that I've done. <laughs> yeah, it kind of amazes me when you tell those stories. I'm like, how did you even stay in those conversations? Oh Anyways, feel free to comment. Um, We'd love to hear your voice. Um, Feel free to call us out if you heard anything you didn't like or you did like. Um, We're here for the conversation. Yeah. All right. Much love, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening. We love and appreciate that you took time out of your day to engage with this conversation. Feel free to share this episode. Leave a comment, as I mentioned previously leave a review, um, and connect with us. We'd like to get to know our listeners. We hope you have a wonderful day. This is the Soul Stories team signing off.